Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. It be the Sunday show on November the 27th, 2011, 2 p.m. By God, we're starting on time. It's almost like this isn't a show about uh, chaos and anarchy. So one of the comments, uh, issues, criticisms that I got back on the recent shows about spanking was the idea that um, the alternative to spanking is absolute permissiveness and never saying no to your child about anything. And that seems to me like a very odd perspective. Uh, and uh, but, it, but it makes sense in a way. If you look at aggression and permissiveness are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, we all know that bullies tend to be cowards when somebody has more power over them because they've created a hierarchy. The moment you bully someone below, you set up authority above you. That's the great chain of nastiness that occurs in these kinds of situations. But when you are using aggression, you're not reasoning, right? You're not reasoning with someone when you're using aggression, when you're hitting a child. You're not reasoning with the child, which is one of the reasons it's theorized as to why it causes a reduction in IQ points. But, but also, importantly, when you acquiesce to someone, when you simply don't ever say no to someone, you're also not reasoning, right? So aggression and compliance are two sides of the same coin of avoiding reasoning. And the reason that people avoid reasoning <laughs> is because they weren't reasoned with in the past, and it's an area of great pain and sorrow and tragedy and loss for them, and they skirt around it. So if you sort of look at compliance, like over-compliant parenting and aggressive parenting as two ways of avoiding reasoning with your child, then it sort of makes sense as to why people would switch from one to the other. But I would also say that if you look at the avoidance of aggression with your children as the only alternative to giving them everything that they want, never saying no to anything, then of course that's going to lead you to say, well, a little spanking is better than complete acquiescence to everything the child wants. But it's a false dichotomy. And I think that you invent this alternative so you can continue with the spanking. And again, it's not because people feel great about spanking. I don't think there are many parents out there who enjoy it. But it's because it helps you avoid the pain of having to deal with the fact that you were very mo most likely spanked yourself. And uh, that's not a pretty or pleasant thing to look at. What you also hear a lot of when you bring up anti-spanking ideas is that... Um, People will say about spanking or, you know, they'll sort of say, well, you, you can use force on your children to prevent them uh, from, from worse injuries and so on. So you say, well, if your child keeps reaching for the boiling pot of water on the stove, uh, one smack is better than them getting burnt. I agree. One smack is better than them getting burnt. But that's like saying get a, getting a toe shot off is better than getting a kneecap shot off. Why are there weapons in the first place? Why is there an option for aggression? I think it's really important to understand that if you accept aggression as part of the legitimate tools of your parenting, it will change how you parent. It will change how you parent as, as, a, as a human being fundamentally and foundationally. It has massive effects. Like the moment you accept the legitimacy of a state within a society, you end up just going down this snowball from hell cliff edge drop to increased state power. Laws multiply. And the moment that you accept aggression as a parent, then you stop using other things because you've got this thing called aggression. Like if you have the ability to magically counterfeit, you stop working for a living. In other words, you join the Federal Reserve. So I think it's really, really important to understand that if you say, well, my child keeps reaching for the pot of boiling water, and so I'm going to smack him or her to 
stop that person from doing. But the question is why? Why are they reaching for the pot of boiling water? And if the child is not able to be reasoned with yet, what are they doing in the kitchen when you're using a pot of boiling water? Um, that's you, you have to shoot the child out. You have to put them in gates. You maybe if if you know you can put them someplace where they don't have they don't have access to this uh, pot of boiling water. Uh, that's sort of important. The second thing, of course, is to explain to the child it's hot water. It's going to burn. It's going to be a big hour. You don't touch. You don't touch. And to do that beforehand, you don't try and discipline in the moment. You you have to set up rules beforehand. Uh, and if you set up rules beforehand and you explain them to your children, in my experience, they're you know, they may grumble a little bit, but they're they're fine with it. My daughter has never tried to play in a plug. She's never tried to grab anything from a stove. She's never, you know, the worst she does is occasionally put her foot on the screen of the, iP- of the iPad, which, you know, we sort of have as a rule that you don't care less about the iPad, but I want a glass to break and injure her foot. So if you say to yourself as a parent, I am going to reject, reject the idea of uh, using aggression, uh, in in my parenting, then you immediately have to come up with alternate solutions. You immediately have to come up with alternate solutions. I've never had to gate my child. Somebody says, isn't gating the same as imprisonment? No, of course, gating isn't the same as imprisonment. That's like saying to a child, you can't leave the house uh, when it's minus 20 outside if you're three and you're on your own, that that's the same as imprisonment. No, it's not. Uh, but I do think that I, I've never had to do it. First of all, when she was so short or so young that she couldn't reason, she couldn't reach the stovetop, uh, and and uh, that wasn't really an issue. And of course, if my child, like when she was in my arms, uh, if I felt there was any danger in terms of cooking, I simply wouldn't cook using boiling water. Uh, I would cook in the in the oven. I would cook in in the microwave, or we would eat cold food. Uh, those are the things. Those are the choices that you just make as a parent. I mean, if you take smacking a child out of the equation. What, allows, what it allows you to do is be really creative in other things. I've never had to gate my child away from doing anything. We did put a barrier when she was very young in front of our fireplace, which is always a little warm because there's a pilot light going. And so, but that's not exactly, you know, putting a little fence in front of a tiny section of the house is not the same as imprisoning a child. I think that would be a pretty much a stretch. But if there is, a, like if your child is around and grabby and you haven't, then you just don't cook with boiling water that day. I mean, how hard is that? You know, I mean, just don't do it. Find some other way to get food into them uh, that doesn't involve that. Uh, you can use a toaster oven that's further back. You can use just toast. You can give them cereal or porridge or whatever. There's tons of things that you can do that uh, don't end up with you in that situation. So that's the challenge in terms of, well, what if they're running out into the street? Well, have them play in the backyard, have them play in the basement, have them play in the house, put up fences, take them to a park, take them to a baseball diamond, take them to a play center, take them to Chuck E. Cheese, take them to the library, take them lots of places they can go where they're not going to be out running uh, on the street, assuming that they're too young. Now, of course, by the time they can run and break free and so on, you need to have gone over these rules and the reasons why. Um, You know, my daughter, like most kids, didn't like the straps in her car seat. And so, for about half an hour, I sat down with toy cars, explained to her the bump, the, 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 the fact that we might have to stop suddenly, that she could bump her head, this and that. And, you know, I'm not saying that she immediately is filled with the illumination of a two-year-old concepts of cause and effect and delay, delay of gratification, but she understands and she acquiesces. It's the same thing with brushing your teeth. You know, you have to sit down and explain in the child's language what and why uh, teeth brushing, why it needs to occur, and so on, right? Uh, I'll give you sort of a tiny example. Um, 
my daughter didn't want to take her pajamas off this morning. And frankly, given how comfortable those full body pajamas are, who would? Uh, but uh, I had to explain to her, uh, and I said, I need to take this off. And, um, and she said, I don't want to, right? And it's like, okay, like, I understand you don't want to. But you know how you like you sweat when you run away, run around and all of that? Well, the sweat goes into your pajamas, and then you sleep in your pajamas for a couple of days with that sweat, and it can give you a rash that can make you itchy and uncomfortable, and I really don't want that to happen. And it took two passes, and she got it. She let me take her pajamas off. She She changed into her day clothes and so on. I mean, you just have to be patient and you just have to say I'm not going to the place of force because if you go to the place of force you immediately discredit and discount the value of patience and reasoning and so on so just take it out of the take it out of your toolbox take it out of your toolbox and you will find another way and a better way and that creativity will translate into better parenting into a better relationship with your child into your child's capacity to internalize reasoning right i mean this is why smacking tends to escalate. This is why hitting tends to escalate because it doesn't teach the child anything other than try and get away with stuff. It doesn't teach the child any reasons as to why things are happening. So, so no, you don't, uh, you don't need to use this, this kind of force. I found it utterly unnecessary. But it also means that you really, really have to for the first couple of years. You just have to devote yourself to your kids. I know that's an inflammatory thing to say, and I certainly don't mean to imply that there are short parents out there who – large sections of parents who avoid this. But you just have to be there. I mean – I gave up video games, I gave up reading, uh, I gave up exercising in any predictable or regular way, I gave up, you know, the, the writing books for the most part. I mean, you just have to give all this stuff up and you just have to be there with your kids. And I have found that at this point, if, uh, if my daughter is running someplace that she shouldn't, all I have to say is, Isabella, and she stops. It's just a slight change in tone. You know, it's like um, you're, it's like you're driving a super tanker. If you want to turn, it's got to be just a delicate motion. You whip the wheel around and things just go all kinds of haywire. You just need the very lightest touch. But for that lightest touch to work, you have to have credibility. You have to show your child through your relationship with your child the behavior that you want from that child, right? You instruct the child in language. You say, this is a boat. This is a tree. This is a hat. This is a house. This is an expression of bemused resignation. Um, she's quite advanced. But you teach your child the words, and then, the, and then your child echoes the words back to you. In the, same, in the exact same way, you teach your child how to treat people by how you treat that child. If you want your child to, to listen to you, you have to listen to your child first. If you want your child to respect you, you have to, use, you have to respect your child first. If you want your child not to use violence, you have to not use violence first. Everything you do is the template. Your child is the echo of your actions. And so everything that you want out of the child, you have to first put into the child through your actions. And uh, people don't like the fact that children are, in fact, an accurate reflection of their parenting. But nonetheless, it's a fact. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, point that out. Thank you so much to everyone who's calling in. Let's get straight to the call of the brains of the outfit. And I will see on you, you on YouTube soon. Ready to go? You bet. All right. Well, uh, first caller we have on the line, um, first time caller in. Go ahead, Alex. Hi. Can everybody hear me? Yes. The world is listening, my friend. How are you? Woo! 
Uh, first, I just wanted to say thanks for James for getting this all sorted out, and thanks to Stefan. Um, your podcasts have been really enriching, so uh, I'm excited to be here and a little nervous, but thanks to you both. You're welcome. And yes, that is a very good point. Thank you so much for James uh, every single time. Uh, every single week, it makes the show so much better. I really appreciate it. Well, I'll just get to um, the point, I guess. I um, was listening to your podcast on environmentalism, both uh, one, two, and three, and I recently got done listening to a podcast with Dr. Robert Nelson about uh, religion and environmentalism. Um, and I was hoping we could maybe talk about uh, environmentalism and morality. Um, I was. I'd love to. That's a great topic. Um, I I was. Uh, I took note of the um, the idea that environmentalists often connect in a Calvinistic way, sort of. Humans are the cancer of the earth. Uh, we're not fit to manage the planet. Um, and that maybe there was some pristine Garden of Eden before that the Native Americans lived in or something like this. And um, I'm, a, I'm a, currently working on a permaculture, uh, local organic food kind of project. And uh, we kind of have a different way of looking at human management. And um, if we look back at Native American tribes... Um, and the one I'll be specific about, about is the Kalapuya Indians in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, where I'm from. They actually, their nature was not untouched by man, but rather they managed it very, um, with m a lot of skill developed over many generations. And an easy example is that um, the, the, the land here is oak savanna, meaning that there's grass that's really good for big game. And there's a lot of oak trees and other undergrowth that, that yield a lot of good nuts and, and uh, other edibles. And this kind of takes away the whole concept that Native Americans were primitive. They didn't have any control over their lives. They were just sort of letting life happen to them. And um, it kind of makes us think... I'm sorry. That, I, so, oh, sorry. Yeah. You, you mentioned a tree, and then you said this proves that... I'm just... Can you make that connection for me that they're not primitive oh. because... Okay. Um, I guess... Um, Rather than us thinking that nature was untouched by man before settlers got here, it actually was touched by man in a very skilled way. And that um, the Native American populations um, were, were uh, domesticating uh, the countryside. And I think that stands in contrast to what most people would say was, you know, a, a, a promised land of Eden where nature was untouched because... Sorry, I don't. I don't think anyone has said that the natives. At least I've never heard it said that the natives didn't touch the land. Of course they did, right? I think, uh, but I, I'm, I'm right. having trouble understanding what you mean when you say that that, that it wasn't primitive. Um, I mean, technologically right. and philosophically, I mean, it was incredibly primitive. I mean, they had, uh, you know, virtually no, well, no modern tools that we would really understand of it. Uh, and their worldview was incredibly superstitious, right? They believed that, uh, you know, spirits lived in, in things and so on. I mean, it was very, uh, I mean, it was really, really primitive. It was more primitive than the Egyptians as far as, I mean, again, this is my sort of understanding. I'm no expert on right. it. Uh, and, and again, I, you know, I'm sure that they lived in harmony in some ways with their environment. Uh, the one thing I remember is that people say, well, they used every part of the buffalo and that actually is to my knowledge, is not true. That they wasted a right. huge amount of stuff. And, and um, I, but yeah, I don't. I don't think anyone's going to yeah. say that they didn't affect their environment. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly true that they did. But right. uh, I think we do have to categorize them as, as a primitive society again, unless you have a different definition. And and I think that that would be something I'd like to put forward is that um, I think that 
our definition of them as primitive might be um, a little short-sighted because we had to we have to imagine that they didn't have books to to convey knowledge and that their civilizations lasted thousands of years comparatively to uh, you know if we're going to take the American Empire which is relatively new and is already showing a lot of signs of collapse both economic and environmental um, these people of North America lived um, you know within their means for many many generations and they transmitted their knowledge through ritual and and these superstitions but this knowledge helped them know uh, which trees were good to make into bow and arrow and uh, how to manage the grasslands and how to uh, follow game and um, I'm not saying that we need to go back to exactly how they did things and I actually agree with you very much that if we've created a cityscape that is our environment. Um, but I was kind of hoping to, to put forward another, another form of envir environmentalism that doesn't look at humans as, a, um, as an evil cancer, but rather a very skilled species that, that can uh, manipulate their environment in ways that can be very sustainable. And I guess my argument would be that um, while we have developed a lot of new technology that is really amazing, for instance, the laptops we're all using, We've also developed a lot of processes and ways of being that are very short-sighted compared to Native American um, cultures. And we like to think that, you know, our technology was what made us defeat them uh, as settlers, but rather it was smallpox that, um, you know, wiped out 90% of their people. And, oh, it, yeah. and I, like to, I like to think that, you know, what if 90% of us got wiped out today would we have cell phones or laptops and who, who on earth could possibly construct one? Uh, you know, who, who could fabricate all the pieces and also, you know, get all of the materials needed out of the land. And um, I think that starting from a different way of looking at environmentalism and um, realizing that, yes, we are, we can be stewards of the earth and affect our, our environment in ways that are more suitable to us, but maybe it's important to question uh, the extent to which we're doing it, uh, and whether or not it's short-sighted or far-sighted. Well, sorry, let me just sort of uh, uh, interrupt for a second. I, I, yeah. look, I, I appreciate Please. where you're coming from, and yeah. I think this is a very, very important topic, and I certainly mm -hmm. do appreciate you you bringing it up. But let me let me say this. Yeah. Um, it's important to understand that when we're talking about sort of stewardship of resources, mm -hmm. that by and large, and vastly for the most part, we are talking about the state in in the West. The mm -hmm. state runs and controls the resources. The straight the state runs and controls the human resources in that it indoctrinates the children and controls almost all of the economic actions to some degree or another of the adults. So the human capital is created, managed, and controlled in a sense by the state. Mm -hmm. The uh, the sort of fixed capital um, responds to state edicts. I mean, if you want to look at something like the huge econ it was an, it was a, an environmental catastrophe everyone talks about the housing crisis as as a um, an economic catastrophe which of course it is but i would also argue that the housing crisis in the us was a massive environmental catastrophe how many resources were pulled out of the earth and transmogrified using massive amounts of energy and other resources and then how many people went out and built stuff how many roads were built and so on uh, to the point where you know, millions and millions of houses are, are unneeded and falling into disrepair and disuse. A massive, massive waste of resources that would never occur in the free market, would never occur. 
uh, in the free market. And so I would really argue that there are two areas uh, of, um, and it's a bit of a continuum at times, but there are two areas of economic conservation of uh, of environmental conservation because e economics is about doing things more efficiently, which means using fewer resources, less time, less energy, and so on. So econ economics and environmentalism are incredibly tied together. And wherever you have forces which interfere with economic efficiency, you have forces which interfere with environmental issues, environmental needs. And you can just think of these... Um, you know, millions of, of ghost uh, city houses and condos that are going up in China just to create the illusion of economic growth. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a huge, massive, monstrous, disgusting, vile, yes. uh, hateful waste of resources. So in the area of voluntarism and the free market and so on, things tend towards efficiency, right, to the point where you can, you know, I wanted to start reading my daughter The Hobbit yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so normally I would have had to go to a bookstore in the past, right? I've, I'd have had to go to a bookstore and buy a copy, drive over, and the, fix, the physical copy would have to be there. Or I'd have to go to the library or maybe they'd be able to order them online, in which case it would have to be driven to my house. I mean, how crazy is that, right? On the other hand, uh, for $11 and change, uh, I downloaded it in about 30 seconds to my, uh, my Iconia Acer 100 tablet uh, and, and began reading it there. So that is the area where the use of energy and of resources tends to diminish because those are all involved in price. And the areas where the government is involved tends to waste and waste and waste. And just look at the public road system. I mean, talk about encouraging mm -hmm. the dependence on fossil fuels. So in terms of our collective management of resources and so on, it's really important. You've got to separate these two areas of voluntarism and virtue. Like in the same way, if you're talking about childbirth, or abortion, you have to differentiate between rape and consensual sex. You just have to. You have to differentiate between violence and voluntarism in all spheres of life. A failure to do so, I think, blends the two together, much to the expense of both truth and virtue. Right. Um, so that would actually bring me to the next point I would like to touch on is I, I, I too agree that, you know, uh, government managing our resources in the way that we react with the environment is not is not a, as you say, you know, the government is initiating force against us and our resources. Um, and I, I really liked your, your discussion about the, uh, the problem of the commons and private property uh, and, and private ownership as a way of um, managing resources. Um, but I found that if we, if we decide, okay, we don't want the government managing our environment or our resources, we're going we're gonna to rely on the free market uh, for efficiency uh, and private ownership. Um, I thought of an example that I might like to ask you about in a, of a case of private ownership where I found that actually uh, the problem wasn't really solved. Um, there's a, a man that owns a lot of land privately, and he's a logger. And so he chops down his trees, uh, but he, he, re, he reseeds and he replants in, in a rotational format that makes the forest still exist. Um, but the problem there is that he only replants Douglas fir. And so the diversity of all of the land surrounding um, a property that I'm affiliated with, uh, it loses a lot of diversity. And, and during the time of the clear cutting, a lot of rainwater uh, just rushes down through his property, uh, takes, taking a lot of topsoil with it, and ends up bursting through our creeks that are on our land. And what ends up happening is uh, our watershed goes from being a year-round 
creek system to a four or five month creek system. Um, and here I see that it's not really, a, you know, he thinks that he's doing a good job. He's keeping the forest going and he's keeping, he's still making profit from it. But I, I wonder if this is more of a case of personal consciousness about, about really understanding the processes there and not as much about private ownership. Well, sorry, I'm I'm just trying to understand what yeah. what the issue is. I mean, I understand it, and I'm sorry to hear about it. Right, yeah. that you're getting excess runoff because the lack of biodiversity in this man's land mm -hmm. is not keeping back the water. Right. You're right. Uh, right. So he's damaging your property. Right. So you would have legal recourse to that. He's flooding your property. Right. Uh, more or less. Yeah. Um, and and I'm not sure if um. Well. That's an interesting point to wonder if I could have legal recourse to, to deal with that. Um, well, sorry. Yeah. Yes, you would in a free yeah. society, right? Because I would assume that because you don't live in the Kalahari Desert, you would buy flood insurance, right? Um, well, it's not necessarily a flood. It's just uh, not managed as well as you would like to, to have, have really sustainable and, and productive um, water catchment. Well, sorry, but whatever, yeah. what, however you want to talk about it, there's some negative impact on your property, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, so you would have insurance against that negative impact, whatever you would call it, flooding or lack of water table management or whatever. You would have some, uh, some insurance against it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it would be up to your insurance company to make sure that they were able to minimize their costs of paying out. So let's just say it's it's flood flood damage, just yeah. because I don't know what the hell else you're talking about. Okay. Just my ignorance, right? Yeah. So you buy flood insurance. So the first thing your flood insurance company wants to do is to make sure you don't get flooded. Because mm -hmm. if you get flooded, they have to pay out a lot of money, and they, they're going to lose a lot of money. So the first thing you have to do is they have to make sure – that you don't get flooded. So they would be fully aware that if somebody buys up a whole bunch of land higher up on the water table, plants only Douglas firs, that all this water is going to run off and going to flood you and it's going to flood lots of other people. They're going to have to pay a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to uh, have um, an issue because what they would do is in order to recover the money that they have to pay to you for flood damage, they would go and sue this guy who's flooding your land, right? Mm -hmm. And so when he wanted to go and buy, build all of this land – he would need insurance to do his business or he'd need someone to, to enforce his contracts and to provide title or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And so these people would say, okay, well, wait a sec. So you're going to plant these Douglas firs, which means all this water is going to run off. So let me call up the, um, the water, uh, the flood insurance company, and they're going to say, holy crap, if you do that, you know, we're going to have to sue this guy for 10 million bucks. And so they're going to phone you back and say, listen, you know, we can't give you any insurance. We can't enforce any contracts because you're going to get sued and we don't want to get sued for $10 million, right? So you're, you're on your own. Now, if, he's, if he decides to just go ahead and do it on his own, then he himself gets sued without insurance for $10 million and he's not going to want that to happen. So he's going to have to find either another location or some way of uh, eliminating or minimizing the water damage because in a free society, it's the market that deals with the problem, uh, and everybody wants to make it as efficient as possible, and everybody's really interested in preventing rather than solving problems after the fact. Right. Uh, so that and, would be – again, yeah. that's just off the top of my head. I mean that's yeah. just a guess as to how and, it would and work. I think that part of um, – you know, I don't I, – I really appreciate your responses uh, uh, explaining the free market principles to me a little bit more. I'm not very well versed there. Um, and, and I have another question that might, you know, help me clear up some of my ignorance. Um, so something that I run into in my mind is what if the insurance companies, uh, and this man above living above us 
um, you know, and I find that this is not an uncommon thing that happens, simply don't have a very uh, enlightened understanding of, of how systems should work to be the most efficient. And even if I, you know, perhaps show them data that's, you know, um, you know, proves a point one way or the other, they say, well, our men have checked this out and actually uh, you don't have recourse here because you're, what you're saying doesn't fall in line with what our research shows. Um, and I find that this is quite common that people that are, uh, you know, in the permaculture field or in uh, more diverse agriculture fields that, that would refuse to just use monocrop systems or clear-cut systems, their methods are often overlooked. So in a free market, would there be a way to, to um, would efficiency just lead toward people uh, who, who really have more in-depth knowledge being able to, to enact their knowledge? Or, or am I not really understanding? No, it, it's fear. It's fear. Look, I mean, uh, it's, it's fear that, like rational, sensible fear that uh, that would drive people to do this. So uh, if, uh, if, if it's objectively true that planting nothing but Douglas firs means that you're going to cause water damage to everyone around you, then people are going to say, well, I don't want to get the shit sued out of me, so I'm going to buy insurance. And the insurance company is going to say, I can't insure you if you're going to do what you're going to do because the likelihood is, the risk is that um, – I'm going to have to insure you for $5 million a year for a $10 million policy. And people are going to say, well, I can't do that, right? Because anyone who tries to pay too much in insurance is going to be uncompetitive in selling his Douglas firs relative to somebody who's going to plant far away from anyone else or where there's no water table issues or in a valley or I don't know, I'm just making shit up, right? But they're going to be able to sell their Douglas firs that much cheaper because they're not going to have all of this risk insurance. But people, you know, people don't, want to damage other people's property in a system where they are going to be responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to buy insurance because they're also not going to want to operate without insurance uh, because that's really risky. Uh, to operate without insurance means that you could get wiped out if there's a heavy rain. And people just don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's sort of fear of the consequences of doing harm to others that uh, makes this work. Now, of course, people in the government and people in corporations have very little fear of that. Yeah, very little fear of that because mm -hmm. they're protected by these legal fictions mm -hmm. called the immunity of the state or the immunity of, from personal liability called the corporation. And so in the current system and, – and of course people who, um, who want to bring suit against someone need to spend years and hundreds of thousands of dollars at best to do it. And so there's a huge barrier to entry to using the legal system. I mean this is what people say. Well, how are we going to run society without a legal system? I say, have you ever tried to use the damn legal system? Are you crazy? Yeah. I mean, it's nuts. So it's just – it's fear of the consequences that keeps people from doing bad things. I mean, and hopefully some love of your fellow man and so on. But yeah. where love fails, fear rules. And um, so I think that's what would what would keep it going. Um, and I hope I'm not taking up too much time, but I just had one more, um, one more thought. Uh, am I doing okay on time here? Or? Yeah, yeah, go, go. This, I mean, I find this useful stuff, so please okay. go ahead. Um, my friend uh, Opie, he's actually in the chat room. He he inspired me to come on and ask these questions. But um, he mentioned that there was a conversation that had taken place, the idea of running away to the forest, kind of to escape, uh, you know, the bully that is the state, and how that might not be such a good idea because the bully will still exist. You're kind of running in fear uh, rather than standing up to the bully. Um, and I, I'm not, I, I haven't heard the discussion, but let's just say that that's a scenario. Um, I was kind of un, 
you know, I'm kind of under the impression that if the state runs off of my taxes and the corporations that are kind of like uh, and, and lobbyists and everybody that stands to profit off of the state, if they're all kind of working together and living off of my input, both financial and, you know, if I vote for people, I give them credibility. If I go into the woods with a group of people and we start a, a intentional community where you're growing all your everything that you need and we kind of take our manpower and our money out of that system, is it not kind of starving it, you know, from from below? And uh, is that not a viable way to maybe um, stop a system that is run off of our our finances and our, you know, our acquiescence? Well, um, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. And yeah, I mean, I think that certainly it would be harder for the state to tax that. And as a result, the uh, the state would uh, have to live with less taxation. But that doesn't mean that the state will stop. I mean, if you look at the government of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, I mean, they had a tenth of a tenth of a percent of the resources that current governments have now. But that didn't mean that people were any more free. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Right. So so that I mean, it, just starving the government of resources uh, is not going to make the government going to go away. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just not going to happen um, again. And the, the historical examples are, are legion. I mean, it's the almost perpetual majority of human history is a government with few, few resources that still hangs on to power at all costs. But uh, I, the government doesn't run on your resources. In my, in my, this is my argument. I'm uh-huh. going to say this is proven and true, but I'll just make a brief case for it and let me know what you think. The okay. government does not run on your resources. The government runs on the willingness of others to attack you for questioning the government. That's the only thing that the government fundamentally runs on. Let me say that again. Mm-hmm. The government runs on other people's willingness to attack you for questioning the government, for questioning the need for a government. That's what keeps the government running. Because obviously it's not just force, because few people experience, or relatively few people experience in the West direct government force to begin with. Uh, and so it's not just force that makes, makes that case. It's when you sit down with your friends and your family and you say, I don't like the use of violence in running society. And that if people support the state, they're supporting the use of violence against you for disagreeing. It is the emotional H-bomb that goes off when you sit down and have that conversation and point out the violence of a status system and everyone attacks you and everyone puts you down and everyone makes fun of you and everyone uh, mocks you and everyone calls you names and and everyone will go to the brink. And it's seeing the ugliness of your own tribe turning against you because you question the violence of the rulers. Mm -hmm. That is what keeps the state running. Running away to the woods doesn't solve that problem at all. And uh, I think standing and making a moral stand is what does. Because I guess... um... What I so 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 it seems like if I was wanting to go start like local food production systems, the state would still run unless everyone decided that's the right course of action. I'm not gonna belittle and ostracize people for questioning the state anymore. Um, well, no, not everyone needs to do it. Waiting but, for but perfect enough, consensus, right? Enough people. Just you know, it it has to become a known thing. Uh, right. Like what what has to happen is people have got to become ashamed of supporting violence. Right. Right. That, that, that people just have to become ashamed of it. It doesn't mean that, like, saying that we, we can't get rid of the KKK until nobody wants to be in the KKK means that, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a circular argument, right? Right. But what you can say is that we don't want people to be proud 
of being in the KKK, right? Yeah. Right. We don't want it to be openly like people. It's we got to drive it underground. We got to drive it underground. If we drive it underground, we have a chance. But when people view allegiance to the state as virtue and they openly state it and they're openly proud of it and it costs them nothing. Statism costs people nothing. Right. But if it starts to cost them relationships with virtuous people, there's a price to being a statist, right? So right. if you're a, you know, a member of the KKK in Alabama, uh, Alabama in 1910, what is it costing you? Nothing. Right. In fact, there's great social rewards to it. Free barbecues, free lynchings, right? Everybody is approving of it. Everyone, how did that change? How right. did it change? Well, it changed because people said, this is a racist, violent, ugly, evil, nasty, brutish, childish, dangerous organization. Now, people can listen to a lot of labels like that, and people don't give a shit if you apply labels to them unless it actually has some direct impact on them in some visceral way. Right. And so if you say to your brother, listen, racism is hideous, racism is wrong, you, you, you participating in the lynching of these poor black men and women in hanging them high from trees in setting fire to them in brutalizing and chasing and murdering them, you being involved in this, you supporting this, you approving of this is not something I can overlook anymore. Right. You need to stop participating in this violence or I can't have you in my life. Right. So, um, so if, if we're, so we've kind of established that there can still be a, a there's certainly a virtuous act of staying within these, this realm and standing up to the government and, and the state and saying, you know, I don't support this violence. But I was wondering, um, I find that even with people that practice, uh, you know, this kind of virtue, I, I find one more bugaboo that, that might, um, that leads me to say that perhaps even though we think we're acting morally, we might still be initiating force against our fellow man in a way. And what I mean to say by this is that since we're all using our laptops right now, uh, you know, I'm a culprit, everyone's a culprit. Um, and we, if we think of how these were manufactured and where the precious materials came from and the political and human cost to, to building these things, um, you know, the, the data for the United States right now, as far as preventable diseases and, and diseases that were quite uncommon before the Industrial Revolution, kind of stands as a testament to, to what kind of damage we're doing to our air, our water, our, and, and especially the lack of nutrition in our food that we eat, even if they are fruits and vegetables. Uh, you know, the way that they're produced is really not very healthy. And so if we take our modern lifestyle, whether it's a laptop, the carrots that we're getting that are shipped from very far away, if we take all these things into consideration, and we realize that we're all members of the same, you know, planet. Basically, uh, we're all sharing the same water, the same air, the same soil. Am I not initiating force against my fellow human by uh, participating in practices that will pollute uh, that air and that water and, and give children cancer and give people, uh, you know, food that gives people heart disease and cancer and cars that, require lithium from Afghanistan. Uh, is that not an initiation of force? I, I, I don't see how. 
uh, I'm certainly willing to to look at it. I mean, certainly you are not directly initiating force, and you are not morally sanctioning the initiation of force. Because I find that I'm financially sanctioning, you know, the, this MacBook Pro I'm on. Uh, or, Which you're using to do what right now? Uh, um, you know, talk about these things. To talk about truth, peace, reason, virtue, philosophy, right. all the good stuff, right? And, and so I, all the good I, stuff. I personally think, yeah, it, it's a really good tool. But um, but I wonder if, you know, a, you know, people think maybe I'll drive an electric car. And, and uh, that was mentioned in one of the podcasts as a, a moral statement that an environmentalist might make. Uh, Which is but, not true and valid anyway. I mean, no, right. the amount of environmental predation and degradation that goes into making an electric car is worse even than a gasoline-powered car, particularly the batteries. I mean, it's monstrous. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's exactly my point is it is really monstrous. And I think that if we're going to be acting with virtue and with morality, I, I on some level think that using that Prius or, or, um, or just participating in an urban lifestyle uh, financially is telling the market, even though it's not a free market, it's telling those producers of those products, I support your product and I will support you mining it from, from the Horn of Africa or, or shipping it from China after it's been canned. Um, and I think that is kind of an attack on on our generations. No, to come. no, but look, look, yeah. no, because you're, you're looking at the, this is the, the concept of collective crime and collective guilt. Mm-hmm. Right, so so um, you know, Apple apparently and reportedly uses um, Chinese companies to produce parts of its electronics, and those Chinese companies treat those people badly. And you want a MacBook, and therefore, if you buy a MacBook, you're giving money to Apple to give to the Chinese companies who treat mm-hmm. their workers badly, and and so on. This is sort of the the argument, right? Yeah. And um, if you had said to people in the South who were trying to end slavery, you cannot live in the South. Because everything that you buy in the South has some involvement with slave labor, mm-hmm. right? You cannot buy paper because the wood that was grown to make that paper was grown by slaves. So you can't buy paper and you can't write down any arguments against slavery because the pens and the ink and so on are all produced by slave labor. Mm-hmm. So you can't live in the South. You can't proselytize against slavery. You can't make the case against slavery. Would you make that argument to them to tell them to stay out of the public arena? And not make any arguments against slavery because things that they're buying are integrated or involved with slave labor? I think an argument that I might make is that we need to transition to um, buying things. No, 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 no. Sorry. Just deal with the theoretical example if you don't mind first. Um, Would you you go back in time and tell these people, stop writing anti-slavery tracts. Stop making the case against slavery because everything that you're buying and use is involved with slave labor. um, Well – Sorry, can you repeat that one more time? I got a little mixed up there. Uh, what part? Um, well, I, I, I guess I would... Uh, the, the theoretical um, uh, scenario that you're putting forth, I, I'm confused about the, uh, what, what I'm answering. Sorry. Would you go back in time and mm-hmm. tell to the people who were arguing against slavery in the South in the mm-hmm. 18th century or the early part of the 19th century, would you go back and tell mm-hmm. them to stop doing what they're doing 
because the paper oh. that they write on is made by slaves oh, and because right. the pens that they're using and the, the newspapers are partly funded by slavery and slave right. owners own the means of production and, and, and communication and the, the railways lines that yeah. they took to go and deliver an anti-slavery speech were, were built by slaves. Would you tell them to stop uh, and go live in the woods, not make any case against slavery because that would be to involve themselves right. in slavery? Um, I don't think I, – I see your point and I think that I wouldn't tell them to stop but that I might support them and say, well, you know – no, if you stop, um, if we make slavery not an economically viable institution, then wouldn't that make it stop on its own? People won't enslave people if it's expensive and they're not making any money out of it. Right, but in order to do that, you need to get the government to stop enforcing slavery because slavery is perfectly viable if the government is going and catching your slaves. So you, but you need to make some sort of moral case against slavery, right. no matter what, if you want to end it, right? It's not just an argument from economic efficiency that never moves anyone, right? And if you're going to make an argument from economic efficiency, then you tend to support slavery because it's economically efficient to continue with the path and the, the institutions and the setup that's currently there rather than, you know, get rid of all the slaves, which is economically devastating to a lot of people and start to wait for the development of machinery that in the long run will produce more profits, but there's a big dip beforehand. So the argument from economic efficiency tends to be very conservative. It tends to keep things in the grooves that they're already in. It tends to right. keep that train on its tracks because there's so much disruption uh, and lots of people lose and lose permanently and some people gain down the road. So economic efficiency is a very conservative argument. The moral, like the, the, rev the true revolution is in morality. But you, I assume that you wouldn't say to the people arguing against slavery that they should not make those arguments because everything that they use has been built by slaves. Right. Um so under this line of reasoning, I guess uh, I'd be curious. Um, so if you go to like a, a train, chain grocery store today and they have really cheap fruits and vegetables, maybe shipped from Chile or the Midwest or something, um, those those foods and vegetables are they're very economically cheap for, for people that are trying to save money. Um, but they're simply not or people who don't have money. Or right, or don't even have money, right? Right. I mean, this is this has allowed fruits and vegetables into the hands of the poor that right. were formerly unavailable, right? Right. And in the long run, what these foods are are proving to do is that they're actually making people very sick and not healthy. Um, uh, the the reliance on high fructose corn syrup products that are cheap and affordable to those who could well sorry now, right. now but now we're getting back to statism right I mean that stuff's all driven by the sugar monopolies by tariffs and subsidies and all of this sort of stuff right uh, so right, right. listen we got lots of other people on the line so okay. I'm going to have to move on but okay. uh, and I'm sorry well, to interrupt you it's a no, great thank, conversation thank you for your time I'm, all right I really do appreciate you calling in it was a great topic and please feel free to call in again because uh, okay. you raised some just truly wonderful points and thank okay. you so much take care thank you all right. So, sorry, James. Thanks for the reminder. Please to continue. Uh, well, we have a question. I think you wanted to get to it uh, from the chat from last week. Um, I agree with your concept that in the realms of reality, that one? I believe so. I agree with your concept that in the realms of reality, there is no government. Uh, it is just an abstract idea projected onto reality by human beings, borders, and colored maps. So with that concept in mind, how can you go further and explain private property rights? What do I mean by that? First, I agree with you on property rights and universal property rights, e.g. you own your own physical body. However, how would you explain property rights in connection to land ownership? 
uh, isn't that a sense also oh, we did this we did this last week we we absolutely did this last week and i'm i don't think last week's show is up it was a pretty long one it's taking a little bit of a little bit of time to get finished but i'm sorry i'm going to have to refer you we just did this whole thing uh, last week uh, in the show uh, it's a great question uh, how do you go from uh, personal property to land property and so on but um uh, i'm going to just have to i don't want to repeat it for people who were here last week so we'll have to move on to the next caller Somebody says it was a month and a week ago. I thought we talked about it last week, but uh, all right, five weeks ago. We may have talked about it then too. All right, speak up if you're waiting. Yes, hello? Hi. Hey, Stefan, how you doing? Uh, it's, been a while since I've, it's been a while since I've uh, been on, and I did at least want to pop back in and ha get uh, more of your thoughts on several subjects I was still uh, kind of still contemplating. All right, shoot. All right, well, first I just wanted to have one comment and then three questions after that. Uh, <laughs> my comment is that how you opened up the uh, the broadcast was that you had a very nice way of explaining uh, of, of how to explain to a child why they should do something rationally instead of beating them over the head with it, such as with the PJ example. And I've actually had to do the same thing uh, when teaching people how to go like camping, hiking, backpacking, but like the same reason with the clothes, but you know different reasons like you don't want food smells on you because animals will be attracted to it and all that. I didn't have to beat them over the head with it, but they saw how rational it was. And whatnot. So it does. So that same technique, even in a different context, does work with adults too, provided they're rational, which uh, can be hard to uh, find occasionally. Sorry, and I also mentioned as well that this teaches her something important more than just obey me and take off your pajamas, which doesn't teach her anything but obedience. What this teaches her is that she sweats, that sweat can be smelly and unhygienic, that she doesn't want to sew. The next time I say, we need you to take your clothes off because you've been sweaty, she'd be like, oh yeah, sweat it. Right? So it solves problems in the future. It radiates outwards like a, a beam of light. It, it dissipates into the future rather than just teaching her, obey me in this particular instance today when we're upstairs just doing this, which teaches her nothing other than obedience. It teaches her principles that she can then make her own decisions about taking off clothes in the, in the future. Right, right. And same thing in other uh, spheres as well, you know, and especially when you aren't there to teach them to not give advice, that's when it's really important for them to really kind of rationally uh, learn how to survive and preferably thrive. And a lot of what uh, we're seeing with uh, different abuses and all that, you know, there was the, uh, there was a video you made uh, pointing out that footage of, I think his name was Judge William Adams, the guy who built, uh, beat his daughter with the belt. And yeah. I think that's a very – I've actually had terrific success actually using that particular video as an illustration of larger systemic concepts with whatever you're talking about, the state or just other despotic entities, whatever they are, and saying like, look, I mean, you know, it's basically they're beating you with the cane, you know, with the cane or the belt or whatever, and more precisely, here's how it works. So it's actually been a very valuable tool to teach people about uh, the non-aggression principle and the initiation of violence and all that. So in that sense, that uh, – I guess you could say some good can be taken from something that was actually truly. It, it looked like almost like a snuff film. Actually, I yeah. uh, my gut uh, it was, was it was hideous to watch. It was oh. just hideous to watch. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you can look at photos from Abu Ghraib or other type of things. But yeah, it's it's kind of the gut wrenching thing. But the good thing of it is you can use it as to like look. I mean, when we're talking about taxation being theft, I mean, this is this isn't just hyperbole. You know, I mean, this is the violent. You know, this is the act of violence against me, against you, against the guy down the street. 
and there's yeah, these different also, manifestations uh, around sorry around the question of love and you know automatic parental allegiance and virtue you know should this daughter love her father I mean yeah, that's another well, very powerful question right yeah, he is love earned or is love automatic <laughs> from spilling seeds right yeah, exactly. And, you know, I would have an extremely hard time uh, even forgiving the guy. And and also notice, too, uh, even the stuff that was technically nonviolent, if you listen to some of the dialogue, you know, he tells her, like, this is all your fault, placing the guilt on her. And uh, so that was also kind of its own mind control aspect right there. And then, Oh, I'll yeah, everyone's focus- focusing on the beating. And the, the beating, at least according to my knowledge of the science, the beating is less destructive than the verbal abuse that both parents, that, that both parents are inflicting upon the child. Uh, and uh, I, I've heard very little talk about the verbal abuse that's in that video. It's all about the, oh, he's hitting her. And, of course, that's wretched and evil and wicked, but... Uh, it's the verbal abuse that I bet is going to have much more f- effect on her when she's 40 than the physical uh, uh, assault. Oh, of course, of course. And also notice that as, as it goes on, and you know, for anybody that watches the whole thing, you know, she starts, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the attitude of the victim when she says, like, yes, sir, or when the mom talks to her, like, yes, madam, she's very quiet. And, you know, so you can kind of see where those effects are. And you can also notice that on a systemic level with the populace in general, Whenever, you know, if you're driving down the street and you see a cop behind you, you know, do your hands get sweaty? Do you start looking at your speedometer, seeing whether you're speeding or not? Do you make sure that, you know, you're doing anything ever exactly right because you don't want to give them an excuse to uh, yeah. infringe upon you? I mean, it's, no, it's the same reactions any, at any scope, in any context. It's the same primary method that's going on there. And then yeah, also I mean, notice- what, you, what you want in a free society, what you would have is the police would be like doctors. Right, like if you're if you're sick, let's say you're you're staggering down the street and you're sick and you're nauseous and you see someone up ahead who's carrying a little doctor's bag with a white coat on, you feel an immense flooding of relief and happiness. And at the same time, if you're not sick and you see someone doctor walking down the street, you don't see any fear. And that's what you want from uh, from policing in a free society. Is you want them to be like doctors. Like if they're there and you need them, you're so happy. And if they're there and you, they don't need you, you don't need them. It's like, eh, okay, they're there. So that's good, I guess, if somebody needs them. But you don't want to have that that fear and anxiety and oh, it's just wretched. And there was an article actually recently about cops in Chicago. This woman got uh, beaten up because she tried to intervene and in some two guys beating up some other uh, a woman. Uh, she got beaten up really badly, and she. Um, she went to go and talk to the cops and they, of course, took down her name and did nothing and did nothing. And she kept calling the back. She ended up doing her own investigation, right? So she did her own investigation. She went to talk to the bar owner. She found these people. She found them on Facebook. She got their names. She got their addresses. And she went back to the police to say, here are these guys' names. Here are their addresses. Here's when they're home. Go. They wouldn't go. Of course not, because that doesn't make them any money. What makes the police money is uh, asset forfeiture, is um, uh, is hitting their numbers. And of course, the, the, the cops don't actually want to report violent crimes because that creates the perception that the city is violent, right? So they they want to, to report that they have arrested all these drug dealers because that makes idiots feel safer, uh, but they don't want to report violent crimes. So relying on police statistics is, you know, like relying on... Uh, <laughs> Uh, on Coca-Cola's advertisements for its products and their relationship to your tooth enamel. I mean, it's all just nonsense. So anyway, I just sort of wanted to mention that, but go ahead. No, no, of course, of course. And, you know, the other uh, kind of sad aspect of it is that, you know, their jobs, even if they were more of the minarchist patriot types when they originally started their jobs, 
where they were supposed to function as peace officers. The problem is that they're kind of acting as, not kind of actually, they are acting as policy enforcement with collecting revenue, as you just mentioned. And, you know, one uh, simple fun task for any of them to do is if they, if they don't think there are quotas or hidden quotas or whatever, just try not writing tickets for 30 days and see what happens to your job. I mean, really, oh, yeah. I mean, no, it's a fun experiment. Place, you don't yeah. even need to believe me or, you know, for people listening, you don't need to believe me, Stefan, or anybody else that mentions this. It's a funny experiment. Take 30 days, don't write tickets if you're a cop, and see what happens to your job. And the yeah. results will empirically prove it or not. Uh, if the experiment's done over and over again. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, – but, sorry, going back to that uh, that video, the last aspect I wanted to bring up was notice also the mother's role. And as people focus on, again, the violent aspect of the dad beating the girl with the belt, well, notice also what the mother was doing. She was – she was supporting the judge – she was doing a lot more of, you could say, like the more verbal-related stuff. And, yeah, she did do some of the you know, beatings and all. But it was interesting, especially at the very, very end when she was mentioning about, oh, go down on the sofa and, and do that. So she was very much not just acquiescing to everything he was doing. He was more just kind of like this blind, raging animal. But she was methodically thinking it through, thinking about the cause and stuff. It was almost a more, the mother's role was almost more insidious. Uh, because yeah, it was lie very down deliberate. and take it like a woman. Well, right? well, that the was the more definition of femininity and maturity is to submit to beatings. Well, I mean, how, how, what, yeah. a, what a mind frack is that, right? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that that was the more obvious thing that uh, that of course should not be ignored. But I was more pointing to like look at everything else she was doing. Uh, don't look so much at the uh, like the bell, like the bell or that infamous phrase. But notice, like all the when she was talking somewhat quieter, when she was out of the room, you could still hear her voice. She was still orchestrating a lot of the other stuff that was going on, whereas the the judge, the dad, he was just, you know, kind of crazy going off the cuff. Whereas she was deliberately, methodically thinking it through and saying, you know, and kind of crafting the narrative. So kind of like what the state does, where or any despotic entity when they craft the fake moral narrative with whatever right. it is they're trying yeah. to put. Yeah. That was the mother. Yeah, she, she, she definitely inflamed his. Basically. Yeah, she, she she handed him the moral justification for sure. I mean, he was just angry, and of course, he was um, uh, scared, right? Because he's a judge, and if his daughter is caught downloading illegal materials, that looks bad on him, <laughs> right? Because he's only concerned about appearance, not actually hitting his child. So, yeah, he's got you know concerns about his job and so on. But um, oh yeah, no, she she was absolutely he could not have done it without her. And and the question is, would he have done it without her orchestration? Uh, it probably wouldn't have been as long. She he probably wouldn't have come back. I mean, there's no way to know for sure. But parental violence is a system, and both people hold equal responsibility. And in fact, you could say that the person who's more uh, prone to verbal manipulation and less prone to physical rage is more responsible because she was colder. She wasn't under the, in, in, in the grip of rage like he was, so you could argue that she's more morally responsible uh, because she's not in the same fit of, uh, of rage. So, yeah, well, it's well, just um, – well, yeah, and, and to draw an analogy, uh, you could obviously say, like, the judge was in the position of, like, what you see, like, the people who don't like police brutality. That's, like, the really simple, obvious stuff you see at kind of the street level. But then if you go to the more higher levels of state power, you notice the folks that are calmly, like the bureaucrats or politicians or whomever it is, calmly, methodically plotting. I'm literally, I mean, they a lot of times admit it, too, but day in and day out. Very like, okay, so we're going to raise property taxes or we're going to do this. No, la-di-da. It doesn't have that same visceral impact, but it's insidious nonetheless. And uh, basically the mother was like – The media plays – sorry. The media plays the role to the state that the mother played to the father here. 
right? Yes. That they create the moral narrative and they attack the transgressors and anybody who questions or opposes the arbitrary and brutal use of violence uh, will be attacked. They, the media plays the verbal abuser and the state plays the physical abuser. And I think that's another reason why people found this to be uh, – they had so much um, – it had so much resonance for people. Right, and that's why I was kind of trying to use this horrible event as a teaching aid to show folks that on a now the specific example is a personal one. Obviously, it's a you know two parents and their child, but on a larger systemic level, you could also apply in the same way, and that's what I was uh, trying to do with that. Uh, Onto my uh, attempt to trying to try and keep these brief, I recently finished your book, Practical Practical Anarchy, and I must say it really did clear up some of the questions as well as, admittedly, my reservations about the nature of uh, post-state power structure relationships or the lack thereof, as the case may be. My first question is, what do you think would be the, would be the best role or um, way that veterans can do to bring about the stateless society, especially in terms of how they can bring about DROs uh, for protection services or security services? Oh, that's a that's a great question. What are your thoughts? Well, there was a video I made a while back. Um, I believe it was part of a series I was doing. It's called like Suggestions for Resisting Tyranny, and it was something about veterans as like firearm instructors or something like that. But basically, I was saying that look, um, you know, veterans consider what they're. I mean, again, this is like a business uh, plan, if you will, a very very super simple one. But you know, there is a demand for people to learn how to protect themselves for obvious reasons. And so, uh, but, but the problem is that a lot of people don't know how, I mean, like, for example, you can waltz down to any, you know, dojo basically. And a lot of people don't even know how to throw a punch correctly. And there's different ways of doing it correctly. But the point is a lot of folks don't even know one way of doing it. So I think that veterans, considering their occupation or why they are veterans in the first place, considering everything they had to do in the services, and a lot of them do feel uh, guilty about it, and in some cases rightly so, but one of the ways they can try and make the world a better place genuinely and in some kind of proxy way perform some level of restitution is to, for the future and for other people, these people here, teach them how to uh, deter aggression when, when it's necessary. So I was basically saying, like, look, I mean, whether it's the hand-to-hand stuff or whether it's firearms or whatever version it takes – um, you know, and, and also it helps the veterans out too, because a lot of them, even when they aren't afflicted with mental issues, which happens a lot, or, you know, and, and presuming that they're, you know, they're, they aren't amputated and stuff like that. And of course that they're alive because a lot of them get killed off. Uh, so they don't even, so soldiers don't even live long enough to become veterans or at least not that long, provided that they're still able bodied pretty much, they can go around and actually go and teach people for profit on how to protect themselves. And uh, one of the proofs of this is look at all the different, uh, I guess you could say private schools, but the different, you know, like tactics schools or firearm schools that have been popping all over the place. Um, and you can just do an internet search for anybody who's uh, curious about this. But those guys are turning a good profit. I was kind of surprised, even with the uh, ongoing uh, second depression, I could, you could say uh, you could interpret it as. Uh, the, I mean, they're doing quite, quite well and more so. So, you know, if a veteran doesn't want to go around in some, you know, office job that he's overqualified for uh, making coffee and photocopies, he could make use of his previous experience and at least attempt to do some good by uh, trying to teach people how to protect themselves. But the reason I really want to bring that first question up to uh, up with you is that I was trying to connect that aspect that I was already familiar with, with like the, uh, the DROs you mentioned in Practical Anarchy 
especially the ones that would provide security services, especially against state aggression. So I just wanted to know, how, I mean, how, like, I guess what I'm saying is, how could veterans go about forming their own DRO? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, think, I think DROs are pretty much a long way down the road. Uh, but I will say that, um, you know, the, and look, talk to Adam Kokesh or look up Adam Kokesh, Adam versus the man, uh, K-O-K-E-S-H. I mean, he's the guy, he's the go-to guy. You know, my, uh, my experience uh, in the military is related to rolling dice as a paladin in a basement, drinking RC cola and eating greasy pizza at the age of 15. So, uh, and, and Unreal Tournament. But uh, I, I will say this, that uh, if I were a veteran, I would be... Uh, I would be enormously pissed at the genocidal word jockeys who continually paint the military as heroic, noble service, sacrifice, uh, saving lives, freeing uh, countries, uh, freeing others, uh, defending the oppressed. Uh, the way in which this um, the, 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 the greasy wheel of the propaganda shoot is what delivers people into the endless great white chomping shock jaws of the military-industrial complex, I would be pretty damn pissed off uh, at people who praised the military, at people who uh, had lauded the military, at uh, all of the propaganda in the media and in the family and in the church and this and that and the other. And it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, a lot of, um, I mean, the South is known for two things, religiosity and uh, delivery of youth to, uh, to the military. And those two things seem to me pretty incompatible. I mean, the biggest anti-war movement, if Christianity is to have integrity, the biggest anti-war movement should come from the um, the Christian, uh, from the Christians, right? Thou shalt not kill. Pretty damn simple. Pretty damn basic. And um, uh, thou shalt serve no other but me, saith the Lord. And I think if you have a commanding officer who can order you to do just about everything, that is serving something other than God and Jesus. And uh, I don't see a lot of that coming out of that, and I'd be pretty pissed off at that as well. Uh, so, yeah, well, yeah the it right takes a lot the... of propaganda. So that would be that would be something that I would uh, focus on. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, it's just that, yes, I mean, the righteous indignation, and Kokesh as a specific example, although there are many others and, and folks that I've talked to, where that is um, pretty, uh, pretty uh, typical attitude. But um, I was thinking more, again, more into the future, more kind of just applying the stuff you had in your book uh, about the role of veterans, because, I mean, you actually had certain portions of the book where you actually specifically mentioned not just about DROs in general, whether it's the insurance or, or you know, uh, certain types of insurance, but uh, about ones that would provide security protective services, um, basically kind of like an anarcho-police type thing, if you will, if people want to think of it that way. And so... And there are certain veterans that are very that I've talked to who are very well aware of stuff like this, but they're concerned more with the nuts and bolts. I mean, is it really up to them to kind of form the nuts and bolts of how to make this happen, or what would you suggest? Well, I mean, the, the key thing is is to gain business experience. I mean, I, I would say that to anybody who's interested in changing the world, gain business experience in whatever sphere you can with as much authority as you can. I'm, it certainly wasn't the plan, but I feel very lucky and fortunate to have had all of the business experience that I've had sort of 15 years as a customer-facing entrepreneur. Just go get business experience. DROs are fundamentally a business. The violence is incidental, but fundamentally they're a business. And the army is the opposite of a business. And so if you want to begin to be able to provide valuable services to people if you've come out of the military, you need to cast aside the military mindset and you need to go into voluntary, got to get people's attention, people can say no, and you have to make a thousand calls sometimes to make one sale. 
Uh, and I can tell you this from experience because very few people who listen to this show donate. I have to have about 100 listeners to get one or two donators at best. And so there's a lot more rejection than acceptance. There's a lot more indifference than engagement. Uh, and there's a lot more no's than yeses, which is really quite the opposite of what happens in the military world where you just make things happen. So I would say, you know, just get business experience, become an entrepreneur. And that's the best way, I think, to shake off the military mindset and, of course, lay the foundations for the possible provision of uh, defense or, or protection services in the future. Okay, cool, cool. Then uh, I'll just relay that and forward them to this podcast and stuff like that. Okay, second question is… Um, sorry, uh, did... let me just see if I'm sorry, just to be aware of time. James, do we have other people on the line? Uh, yeah, we do. We have several people on the line. Okay, um, I'm so sorry. You'll have to call back in with the other questions. Um, I do apologize for that. These are great questions, but I want to make sure that the people waiting on the line get a chance to talk. So no problem. Uh, we'll do that perhaps next week. Thank right. you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. I guess I'm up next as far as I have read. That is a great guess. <laughs> so this is Robert again. Um, we've had a couple of talks. Both of them have been uh, theoretical talks about uh, uh, property rights and intellectual property. And um, this time I thought I would personality or uh, personal experience type situation um, rather than uh, being abstract. So um, a significant time back, I had a um, relationship with a, um, a friend's sister who uh, he, she was basically my best friend for a very, very long period of time. Um, and are you hearing that? You still there? Yeah, sorry. Am I hearing okay. it? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So um, we had a, a really good friendship, good relationship, a lot of uh, positives coming from it. and. Um, Basically, I was going through a period in time where I was not finding any um, opportunities of uh, relationships with people of the opposite sex. And um, so I uh, was uh, quite frustrated with the whole situation and um, decided that I was going to go ahead and, uh, you know, hang out at uh, where opportunities existed, which were um, with people of the opposite of the same sex um, not because of any specific uh, physical attraction but because I was horny um, anyway I sorry I just up... want to make sure uh, I just want to make sure I'm following that so you were having a relationship with a friend's sister but it wasn't particularly satisfying and so you thought no. you would seek out same sex sexual relationships is that right no um, my friendship with her was very much just a platonic friendship Right. Um, and and uh, it wasn't about like, you know, trying to um, find any mi miss from that. I mean, it, it, she and I were, were friends, just friends. Um, right. I was not finding um, that I was meeting women in a amorous type relationship. So um, I decided that I would go to, you know, um, diverse bars. Like and, bars. Yeah. Or buy bars, is that? Yeah, buy more so. Um, right. So, anyway, at uh, one of these uh, excursions, um, I ended up uh, running into a sexual predator who I uh, was extraordinarily intoxicated by through voluntary 
consumption of alcohol, I guess. Um, needless to say, um, we ended up going back to his place and he raped me. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, um, later on, I came back and uh, she and I um, were discussing the issue and um, she was asking if I had used a condom. And um, I... If you had used a condom. Sorry, you yeah. mean if the predator yeah. had used yeah. a condom. Right. And um, I didn't really know because I was drunk and I assumed not. Um, and uh, so the discussion basically boiled down to her chastising me for not having been using protection. And um, she was an amazing friend at prior to that but um you know the the harsh the harshness of her tone and the the interaction was just far worse than any thing i could remember from the other situation um and and i, I just it it destroyed me in a lot of ways and i was just devastated um sorry it destroyed you or destroyed the friendship well it destroyed the friendship i mean i was i was really devastated at the time um and, uh, you know, I, I really, I, I didn't have anything to do with her and talk with her, you know, after that time, after that conversation. And um, I have uh, since been reintroduced to uh, to her and uh, she's, you know, just gotten married and stuff. And Anyway, it was a fairly cordial interaction and, and whatever. And I don't even think that she recalls the circumstances by you know at which our friendship ended and um and sorry let me just just to put my own mind at ease i assume that you got tested for stds and you're fine oh yeah yeah okay good well i'm very glad for that though i mean that's you know yeah, like taking one piece of like shit icing off the evil sandwich you were forced to eat so i really i'm so sorry about that as a whole that's just wretched yeah it was it was bad but um you know one thing about being, you know, so drunk that you really can't hardly remember anything, it's, um, you know, you can kind of uh, move on from it um, as if it were, were kind of like a bad dream in certain respects. But um, mm -hmm. uh, that being said... Um, and did, sorry, did you think of, um, of pressing charges and, and so on to protect other people from this predator? Uh, at the time, I was young and stupid, and I didn't even think of it. I mean... I thought, you know, well, it must have been voluntary kind of thing because I was drunk. And that's basically what she was suggesting is that uh, it was voluntary because I was drunk. You know, I chose to go into that situation and, and drink that amount of, of uh, alcohol. So Has she never heard of feminists and rape? Anyway, well, go on. So anyway, at this time, I'm able to interact with her on a you know, cordial level. And um, I'm not sure if I should approach the topic and if I should uh, discuss it with her and explain how hurt I was and, you know, rekindle re that whole angst and frustration on myself and, um, or, you know, bring that into her life if, you know, I should just let her go and do her thing and move on. Okay, let's, I mean, this is a great question. Let me just ask a couple of background questions because this is always the tip of the iceberg question and I don't want to deal with the effect rather than the cause. What do you think it was in your life that led you into this, uh, or or led led um, led you to be more susceptible to 
to being in this kind of terrible situation. And I understand. I'm not blaming you for it at all. I'm just like we're looking at the cause and effect, right? Well, um, um, what, what do you think led led you down that road? Well, I'm a rather effeminate looking and you know a stylistically person, and so the um, social um, pressures that I received by peers and so on was you know that I needed to explore this as a possibility. All right. So, what led you? Do you think to have people in your life who said you should explore? being gay because you kind of look gay. I mean, that's kind of a weird thing to say to someone, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, it just seemed like uh, so many people were on the, you know, let's the bandwagon that uh, we need to embrace this alternate lifestyle and, um, you know, try to support anyone who we think, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, definitely. No, a, let me, it, let me explain this to you. Sorry. Let me, let me uh, try and sort of tell you where I'm, what, what do you think led you to choose Bad friends. Oh, um, what led me to choose bad friends? Um, Let me put it to you in an even more explicit way. What was it in your childhood, do you think, that may have had an influence on you choosing bad friends? Um, well, um, fairly early on, I found that uh, making friends was easier if I had something to give them. And my dad, being a candy broker, had uh, tons of of uh, candy around, so I would bribe people, and that's why the way was it I... that you felt so deficient in what you could offer friends or what friends could offer you that it needed to be you plus candy to make a friend? Oh, um, you know, negative. Uh, like uh, I would say, a quote from my father would be, um, uh, "You have your head up your ass ninety nine point nine percent of the time." Things like that. Oh man, I'm so sorry. What a terrible thing to say to a child. You know, and I, I just, it just reminds me of it because a bunch of people have emailed me since I've taken up the spanking bandwagon, so to speak, and said, ah, you know, I deserve to get spanked. I was a horrible little shit. I was a little snot. I was a disrespectful little jerk and blah, 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 right? Yeah. And it's just like you can, you can hear their parents' words coming right out of them, being inhabited by these mad ghosts, and they don't even know it. And I'm not saying that you're in that category, but... You know, it, it struck me, and, you know, I don't want to reach too far here, right? But your father talks about something being inserted up your ass, and you end up being anally raped. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Uh, wow, never really noticed that one. You seem to be very uh, present when it comes to noticing these um, coincidences. Well, and, and the penis, of course, uh, the, the, the tip of the penis is called the head, right? Oh, yeah. You, you're giving head, you're getting head, right? And uh, head up your ass uh, is a very violent phrase to use against a child and to have the you know, metaphorical head of a penis inserted there. I mean, it's just – again, I don't want to reach too far, but I, I, I don't think these kinds of things are all coincidences. I think there's a kind of programming that occurs for us through verbal abuse as children that we really have to fight to overcome as adults. I just wanted to, to mention that. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a uh... – an angle that I had not uh, really thought about, but um, I guess um, my question more so is as to, uh, you know, do I broach this topic with a person who has moved on in their life and has really no thought of what had happened in that way? Has she done any work on herself that you know of since blaming you for being raped? Um, 
I don't know her well enough to say that she has or she hasn't. Um, I know that uh, for a while. What does she, your gut tell you? What does your instinct tell you? Um, probably not. Well, I can tell you one indication that she had would be that she had done work would be that you it, the onus wouldn't be upon you to make this decision. In other words, the onus is upon you because she's not mentioning anything about your past, right? There's no way that you forget that somebody told you that they were raped. There's no way. And there's no way that you forget your response to it. That just doesn't happen. Unless she's had some massive brain injury, right? In which case you're just starting all over from scratch. It doesn't happen. So the fact is that she is not bringing up what you told her. I mean, if she had care, compassion, and concern for you, one of the first words out of her mouth the moment that it was appropriate and you had some privacy would be, listen, how are you doing since this awful incident that happened? I mean, how's that been? Uh, you know, and and the second thing would be out, you know, like I really thought about this since, and I'm like, oh my God, I actually blamed you for not using a condom when you were raped. I actually put the onus upon you. And as a woman, I should know better than anyone that you don't put the onus, right? I mean, that's like, the, uh, the woman asked for it, asked to be raped because she was in a short dress, right? Yeah. You asked to be raped because you were drunk. I mean, that's bullshit, and women should know that better than anybody, right? So that would be the second indication that she'd done any kind of self-work. So if she's in a place where she's continuing to ignore what you told her and her response, I would not. I would not. I can't tell you what to do. I would not let myself be exposed and vulnerable to that person at all because I would assume that would simply be a repetition uh, of early trauma and what would happen is she would deny she would minimize she would obscure she would right fog and you would end up feeling like you were four again and that i would not do to myself you know one of the things that happens when we come from particularly verbal abusive histories is we tend to take the onus on the success of a relationship 100 percent on our side it's very hard for us to sit there and say i wonder what the other person's going to do i wonder what the other person is going to do i wonder how the other person is going to work to win back my trust and if that other person is not willing to work to earn back my trust which is an act of self-esteem and self-worth if that other person is not willing to work to regain my trust then i mean they've told me everything i need to know you have to let other people inform your decisions you have to let other people inform your decisions right so you said um i would have a hard time no no sorry no 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 sorry it's another caller never mind right so but 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 you 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 need to let other people woo you into wanting to approach them it is not a decision that 100 percent rests upon you let the other person draw that out of you and this is like love this is like like uh, respect, uh, forgiveness, and so on. Let the other person's actions draw it out of you. Be patient and say, well, here's how the other person is acting. How does that make me feel? But you, I suspect, like me, like a lot of other people who've been through these kinds of histories, tend to say, it's, it's all my responsibility. It's all my choice. It's all what I do that determines this relationship. No, no. Step back from that wheel and see where the other person drives it. Yeah. Well, I don't. Uh, I don't think that uh, we really interact enough to have that come up um, in the near future. No, no. So. See, that would be her choice, right? It does. Things don't just come up. People make choices about what they bring up and what they avoid, right? So, um, being that it could be something that is too difficult for her to address because of her immaturity or whatever, then I should, you know, acknowledge that, not force something to be as well as that is, uh, a, that is a whole lot of forgiveness 
in that sentence, my friend. That is a whole lot of forgiveness, and I would argue too much pseudo-understanding. Which I would just argue, right? It's not that it's too difficult for her, right? Because something can be too difficult for someone, and they can say, listen, you know, you bringing up this topic is, is, is way too difficult for me, and I know that that's selfish. I know that's making that about me, but I cannot give you good advice here because I was raped or, or I, you know, my mother was raped or whatever, right? Uh, they would then say, this is too much for me. This is, this is, I'm not able to give you good advice or good feedback here. I'm so sorry. I know this puts you in a hard place, but I can really understand where you're coming from. It's too raw for me. I'm still working through it, and I really can't help you. I mean, you'd be like, it wouldn't be great, but you would understand that. So something can be too hard for someone, and they can be open and honest about it being too hard for them, right? Yeah. Um, I guess the, the tough time I'm having with it is the idea of... of I don't feel that I have any closure on it. In fact, I've like written um, a short story about the whole situation and, and tweaked it and modified it and rewritten it, and rewritten it again and again. And it's just um, it's one of those moments in time that just changes who you are and how you think. And it's, it's no, it doesn't change who you are. It changes what your relationship with the woman is, right? But you have a choice about whether it changes who you are. Right. Yeah, you have some choice about yeah. that. If if you make it that nobody cares about you and you're not, you should be you should self attack for being in this 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 horrible being subjected to this horrible crime. That's that's something that you can rationally work through and you can reject that. I'm mean, not saying it's snap your fingers and easy peasy nice and easy, but it's something that you can continue to work at. You cannot let somebody else's callousness and I consider it I consider blaming the victim of a rape to be a terrible form of verbal abuse. A terrible form of verbal abuse. Well, I considered it to be worse than the actual act. I, yeah, I mean, that's. I'm certainly not going to try and, you know, prioritize what you experienced because you experienced it, not me. But it is a, it is a truly heinous thing to do. It is a truly abysmal, wretched, awful, nasty, gruesome thing to do. But that is her gruesomeness. That is not your gruesomeness, and that is not the gruesomeness of the world as a whole. Do not let her gruesomeness infect and color your view of the world as a whole. If somebody chooses to blind themselves with a fork, that doesn't mean you have to stick a fork in your own eye, right? Right. And so it did not fundamentally, unless you wanted it to or unless you, you acquiesced to it at some level, it does not change who you are for people to treat you badly. Because your relationship is to virtue. Your relationship is to truth. Your relationship is to philosophy, I hope. Your relationship is to self-knowledge. And integrity. Your relationship is not defined by what other people do to themselves. Fundamentally, she did this to herself, not to you. Fundamentally, she did this to herself. Now, she wants it to be done to you so that she feels relief. This is all unconscious. This is all just my guesswork, but this is what I believe happens. When people do us wrong, they desperately want us to internalize that label so that they weren't abusive. They were just accurate. right? So if somebody says to me, Steph, you're a piece of shit. And if I say to myself, my God, I am a piece of shit. Oh, my God, I am a terrible human being. Then they're vindicated. They're not abusive. They're just correct, like saying, Steph, you're bald. Right? But if I reject the label, of course, which I do, if I would reject that label, then they're no longer correct. They're merely abusive. And that's why people are so desperate for you to internalize their abuse so that they're accurate and right and speaking truth. But if you reject the unjust and abusive labels, then they're just revealed as petty, nasty, vindictive verbal abusers. And that's not something that they want, which is exactly why this woman is not bringing any of this stuff up with you, which she damn well should. If you've done someone wrong, you owe it to them to bring it up and make it better.
Well, I guess then the advice pretty straightforward is don't bring it up unless she brings it up. Yeah, I mean, that certainly would be my advice. And and also, when you're around this person, to monitor very closely how you feel, how you experience being in her presence. That's very important. That's very important. We don't, I genuinely suggest that we don't make decisions based on abstract principles when it comes to relationships. I mean, it certainly can be useful to help inform us. But what we first need to do is to experience our own inner experience of being around that person. Do we feel good? Do we feel happy? Do we feel guarded? Do we feel spaced out? Do we feel dissociated? Do we feel distracted? Do we feel irritable? Do we feel, how is your experience of being in the presence of that person? That's the most informative thing that you can get. Remember, the unconscious is 9,000 times faster and deeper than the conscious mind. And your unconscious will tell you just about everything you need to know about that person and the relationship. And we always try and detach our unconscious and have our merely cognitive faculty attempt to run things. And that doesn't work. That's like saying that in order to speak a sentence, I have to look every word up in the dictionary and read out every definition. Immediately and almost inevitably, nobody's going to want to talk to me. I'm never going to get anything out. Right? Language is a fluid construct composed largely of the unconscious. And that's what actually communicates. And the same thing is true of relationships. Uh, they are fluid and powerful and largely reside in the unconscious. And if we listen to our unconscious, I don't think we can go wrong with self-knowledge and self-criticism in our relationships. So I guess uh, now, as far as like uh, my own lifestyle now, um, I've since been married and divorced, and um, I'm looking to find another relationship, but um, I'm putting the uh, issue on my physical appearance and, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with that so probably ah fuck physical appearance fuck looks fuck them and i don't mean that in a sexual way right. no fuck them look everyone gets old and ugly and do you think that my daughter cares if uh, i'm handsome or not she cares if i come to her in the night when she's crying she cares if i'm compassionate and tender and encouraging and i mean m my daughter cares about virtue does my wife care whether i have a six-pack abs no the fact that i have only five and a half she doesn't mind at all Right. But if you're going to get sucked into looks, then you are immediately going to attract uh, shallow, empty people who will be manipulative. That is just natural and inevitable. You, I mean, I know what you I mean, because we're programmed. We like looks and there's nothing wrong with it and so on. But um, you, you simply can't go on looks. And if you allow yourself to become insecure based upon your looks, then you're surrendering your power to tragic and omnipresent marketing, which I don't think you really want. Yeah, but it does help with the uh, lonely thing. Oh, you, ha you ever want to feel loneliness, my friend? You get into a relationship based on looks. You will never feel lonelier than that in your entire life. That is true loneliness, right? To be in proximity without intimacy is true loneliness because then you can't even be intimate with yourself, so to speak. I don't mean that again in a sexual way, right? Right. But um, no, you, you, the first, the first, obviously, the first relationship you need to have is with yourself, and that's why we're spending so much time on this. You need to have a positive and accepting and, and happy relationship with yourself. Then you are capable of being in a relationship. But if you attempt to overstep that or sidestep step that, you will end up in a sexually uh, a sexually charged void of endless falling that prevents you from being close even to yourself, and certainly prevents you from ever being close to anyone else. Well, I would uh, I would say that it 
seems uh, pretty apparent that um, I need to work on that. I think so, and I and I really want to just just before we move on, I just again I want to just express a massive fire hose of sympathy. Okay, maybe not the best metaphor. I really want to express a deep well of sympathy for for you, both for the head up your ass comment, as you say, repeated so often by your dad, and that is just a terrible terrible, wretched, awful, horrible thing to say to a child. I think that this is a kind of programming that occurs in the unconscious and I think that it does not it's not it's not uninvolved in where things end up in terms of the tragedies and the, the crime and the rape that you experienced and I just really want to express sympathy for that and for the way that your friend handled it and to say that you deserve better friends. You deserve you deserved better parents and you deserve a better life now. And all you have to do is put the abuses and the crimes back into the little slots called the heartlessness of those who perpetrated and stop accepting anything for yourself and stop over-forgiving people who've done you wrong and have not apologized or given sufficient restitution. And I think you'll be well on your way. Thank you. Um, all right, well, before I go, um, one last uh, harping on you. Um, Harp away. I've asked you to watch a movie and uh, provided you links Thrive? to it. Um, what's that? Was that Thrive? No, it was uh, oh, okay. Harrison Bergeron. Yes, you've sent me the link. I have it on the list. I have not looked at it yet. I'm so sorry about that. I've spent, spent all week doing this, um, uh, getting all the research together for this mental health video. So. Oh, I by the way, when, when it comes to the mental health video, um, I would really change the title. To? Um, the... Um, the the mental the mental Ill, illness racket. Ah, um, okay. Um, because it, you're talking about the rack, racket of mental illness, and uh, um, there are some areas of mental illness where there have been real understandings, especially in some of the comments that I've seen on the video. That uh, one of them specifically is uh, a. Um, brain scans showing people who have had um, um, schizophrenia that uh, it can be shown well these people have schizophrenia look at the brain here and you can see it and so on so um, well sure but I mean that is something at least according to my research that is something that is shown after these people have been on meds for years and of course you're going to see that changed brain well sure, based on sure. Um, I don't know the specific uh, reference to that but um, maybe put in a little segment on that then to, to highlight that because that was one of the points that was uh, definitely made. Um, All right. Well, listen, I'm so sorry. We do have to move on because we only have a little bit of time left. We've got a bunch of other callers, but thank you so it. much for the honesty of your uh, your story, and I appreciate that. You're welcome. We have two other callers. Uh, go ahead. Hello, Steph. Hi. This is Cody. I'm the one who emailed last night uh, with the subject SSRI escalation in regards yeah, to yeah. the Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's hear your story. I think it's uh, very, very important, and thank you for bringing it up. Definitely, definitely. Um, what had happened, real brief overview, 2003, uh, around January, I had been laid off of a job that I'd been there for a long time, put way too much of my self-confidence in that job, false self, so forth. Uh, so throughout 2003, then, okay, I feel depressed. What's going on? Never really had done a lot of research or thought into it. And, uh, my mother had said, oh, why don't you try Effexor? It worked for me. 
effects are being. In- you sorry, your mother said that. Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, and effects are being an SSNRI, so it's selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So it deals on two different um, of the uh, things, uh, the different uh, things in your mind. Sorry, I'm a little nervous. But sure. um, now I did go on that, uh, and he had started me at uh, lower dose. It was actually through a state. Uh, state behavioral health services, which I'm sure didn't help. This is before I knew any of the things I know now. Um, and then uh, proceeded to move up quickly, eventually to 220 milligrams. And uh, the more I... And how hard, sorry, how hard was it to get this? Uh, not hard at all. I walked in and it was prescribed the first time I went in there immediately. I asked for it. He didn't give it to me because my mother said, oh, this is what worked for me. I go in, prescribe just easily course i found out after the fact it's one of the worst but we'll get to that in just a moment and sorry did you go you went through the sort of checklist uh, the guy said do you feel do you experience this do you experience this and it's like bingo bango bongo here's your here's your drugs not even that hard it's like really? i'm feeling depression uh my mother said this is the uh a drug that'll help and i mean i don't remember all the specifics because it was about six years ago but it wasn't hard at all I mean, I've had experience later on, I won't get into it with uh, like Adderall, which I don't take anymore, which I didn't even, I just go over the talking points online and they prescribe it with, you know, on a whim, no real investigation at all. Um, so throughout the summer, uh, I started not losing touch with reality just yet, but a, a lot more easygoing than probably should. Sorry, just, but, but just so you started taking this stuff, uh, and according to the research that I've done, it takes a couple of weeks to, um, for this stuff to kick in. Was that your experience as well, that it took a while? Yes. Uh, within about a week, I started feeling kind of uh, every now and then waves of somewhat euphoria, not like, not like ecstasy, but it, it was noticeable. And part of me was worried, like, am I going to lose myself? That was a huge thing that I had some anxiety about because I, I didn't want to lose who I am and the lovely feelings I get. So, but it was a trade-off I felt, I thought was worth it at the time. And uh, so, yes, I, I agree. It does take a couple weeks for it to build up into the system or for me to actually notice uh, some changes, but it's not, it's not like a, a painkiller where it's, it's drastic. It's, it's really kind of subtle. You know, it's- and of course, you know, one of the reasons uh, that that seems like it makes sense is that depression often remits in that time frame anyway, without any kind of intervention. Right. So it's like taking it's like I say, here's a medicine for a cold. And in four or five days, you'll feel so much better. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, because that's what happens with a cold anyway. Anyway, go on. I, I agree. I agree. So uh, throughout that summer, I had uh, gotten I was still getting unemployment and then had found a, a small part time job, but really was too afraid thought it was just so hard to find a new job that I was kind of running for myself and is a bit of a downward spiral. But uh to get to the point of the escalation, what I wanted to bring up was then later in 2003, around September, October, I was then slowly starting to lose touch with reality where I was fine. And what did that, what was that experience like? Uh, they, have you ever heard of something called schizotypal disorder? Uh, is that sort of an extreme depersonalization? I'm not sure if that's, let me describe to you and see if that yeah, yeah. The, would be where uh, patterns we're starting to become a really big thing. I was starting to get obsessed with patterns. I was getting obsessed with uh, 
that I wanted to go completely on instinct, like scarily so, you know, not like going wherever that all the little things meant everything and really getting into irrationality. Uh, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to sort of see if I can now when I was a kid when I lived in England from about the age of seven or eight to eight or nine I was obsessed with counting the exhausts in cars because some had one some had two some had four and occasionally you'd find one that had six so every time a car went past I had to, to, to look and see the exhaust now I understand psychologically it's because I had a lot of stuff I needed to vent and get out of my system which so I was fascinated by exhausts uh, but that's not the same thing as what you're talking about, because that's not about having strange ideas about patterns and and instincts and so on, right? Correct. Yeah, right? it was okay. it was more. I mean, later on, it was where I would be so obsessed with like the numbers of things. Like if uh, I don't know if you've heard of numerology, I didn't know much about that, but that's what I was doing. Like if someone's name was something, I would go off of you know the letter of the alphabet and get it down to certain numbers, and I would put a meaning to numbers. Like nine was evil and bad, and eight was perfect for affinity. But before the psychotic break, there were times when I was uh, having faith in having a divine, like some type of plan where I would leave my car doors unlocked, where I would just do things that were really ridiculous, open, opening myself up to all sorts of threats, having your car stolen. But in my mind, oh, no, it's OK, because I'm on this path of righteousness and right. um, and where the pinnacle was i ended up going to a concert in dc at a place called the 930 club and uh i remember standing in the center of the club staring straight up at the uh, ceiling and then holding my neck where i was cutting off my blood supply and all of this i wasn't consciously thinking on purpose this was what i was going to do just what i was doing and i remember taking out my wallet and all of my possessions and my shirt and was just i ended up blacking out and I was just in my jeans and they took me out outside of the club. They probably thought I was high on some type of crazy drug, which affects her, just an antidepressant. And ended up uh, sitting on the corner. I took off my pants and sitting naked in a uh, Indian style position, staring up at the sky, which uh, I understand. It sort of reminds me, I think Michael Hutchins died from erotic auto asphyxiation that he was attempting to cut off his air supply at the same time as having orgasm. And I guess that seems like a good idea if you're on these meds. And it sort of reminded me of you sort of choking yourself, though I know it wasn't erotic for you. But. Correct. So uh, and people from, I guess, the local hospital ended up taking me in. And when they asked me, what do you want? What do you want? I said, effects her. And they can again asked and asked what had happened. My body had overheated so much where I was screaming for like ice, like maybe there was some type of serotonin overload. Uh, huh. But uh, I told them only effects her. And finally, they just ended up writing. Uh, uh, I found out after the fact ecstasy on the uh, on the list, but I didn't take any ecstasy. So it's probably Boy. a good thing they did that or I probably could have gotten locked up. But after that point, my mind was just gone. I was I it was my own different world for uh, a few months. And at that point, you know how uh, and you were still taking these drugs, right? No. Then the insane. I'm sorry, bastard. I went from 220 milligrams to zero. And that. Oh, so he basically catch a cold turkey because you basically had a psychotic break of some kind, right? Yes. And now, with the therapist who I talked to now, they said that is so absolutely wrong. I, don't, well, I can't remember what the term is when a doctor does something uh, negligence that that's negligence. So he had taken me off directly and then tried to put me on lithium. At that point, I was getting into. Is it because he said now you've escalated to bipolar exactly 
exactly. Right, right, right. He says, now you're bipolar. You need to go on this med. I didn't want Jeez. to take it. He then wanted to put me on antipsychotics. And then I had at least gotten to my mind while I was, I was psychotic, not violent, because I wasn't raised violent, but I definitely wasn't myself. Uh, but self-harm was a potential if you're choking yourself, right? Yes. And uh, there was a time, and I, it's kind of scary, where I was, when I, before I'd wrecked my car, when I was driving my car and I wanted to almost close my eyes because I had faith that I was on this right path, just following instinct. Which... Yes, yeah, so like you're having a Luke Skywalker moment, you know, close <laughs> your eyes. I mean, we shouldn't laugh because it's very dangerous, but I mean, that is the level of, of fantasy that you were in, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, it was. Now, some of the scariest stuff that still brings back tears but getting better with therapy is that and i told you this at pork fest before you went on the adam versus the man show we touched talked yeah, briefly yeah. that all the people i loved and trusted the most helped me the least whatever safety net i thought i had with family and friends nope nope i'm now called manic there's a word for me now and if i start talking weird oh manic we, we don't want to talk. Right, and there. then all of your passions become symptoms of insanity. Exactly. I'm really into philosophy. Oh, that's because you have a monomania and you're socially avoidant and you want to yeah. – oh, I, like, I'm really into anarchism. Oh, that's because – right. You, you know, oh, I'm re whatever you get into, whatever you become enthusiastic about now becomes Man. a symptom of, of a significant problem. And everyone then becomes alarmed by your enthusiasm, right? Yep. Madness. It was Madness. it was way before I got into the ideas that we talk about in the philosophy, but still just anything I got excited about. Oh, you're mania, you're manic. And uh, no one was helping. And even my father put me in an impossible situation because uh, go a few months ahead, I had uh, wrecked my car in a bad accident, but I didn't have a car. I didn't have a job. And living in his house, and it got to a point, he's like, well, you need to get into therapy. And if you don't, I'm going to kick you out. Saying this to someone who is still pretty much insane and doesn't have anything. But, dude, I mean, and, and I'm so sorry about that, but, I mean, how do you feel about your mom? And she, she was saying, let's get, let's get going on this stuff. Yeah. Oh, I still have a lot of hate and rage about her because she wasn't even there at the time. She, she, actually, she, was, uh, she had left my dad a year or two earlier, but she was using hearsay and convinced that same doctor to have police come and pick me up and have a psychiatric review. Which my wow. my dad still he he he's very he was upset at himself because he's not really. I mean that could have put you away for a while, right? Yeah, I I beat it because I even though I was psychological gone, I still had logic. Right. So I be I. Well, you were lucky to beat it. So sometimes that doesn't logic don't help sometimes in those situations. Yeah, she the last woman had said, you know, you seem manic, but you are logic and not a threat to yourself. But yeah, that scared the crap out of me but and i know you have other callers so just to kind of kind of wrap it up what had happened then i i still was way out there but and my dad wasn't helping i ended up did get another car through help from family but i i met um a, a young girl in 17 at a local show because i was really into going to local shows and out of the kindness of strangers because that's who helped the most at that time she allowed me to stay at her house with her mother and sleep on their floor get me a job at burger king to slowly bring normality back into my life and i did it myself and and it wow. sure as hell wasn't easy but i'm just so thankful that people like you are putting out this information because it's just about ruined my life. I totally get that. And listen, you you should owe yourself a massive, huge, sky-spanning flag of congratulations for pulling yourself out of that slippery slope. 
I mean, holy crap. What what an incredible thing to to I mean, talk about it's like you sweet talked your soul back from the devil. Yeah. Yeah, and now you got you signed in blood on the contract <laughs> that it's going down the Homer Simpson fire hole in the kitchen and you pulled it back. What an incredible feat. How Wasn't amazingly it... well done. And thank you. It's it's hard for me to take compliments. Thank you. It wasn't easy. Unfortunately, I first used a double-edged sword of opiates, <laughs> which didn't help. Uh, and for three years, and ended up in uh, a heroin addiction. Never touch needles, but if you use opiates, regular like painkillers, if you do it long enough, you end up to heroin because it's cheaper and easier to get. And then beat that uh, three and a half years ago. Found my wife found philosophy quit cigarettes a year and a half ago and now have a wonderful wife and a wonderful life and um i rebuild everything well we've just got a whole bunch of i don't know if you can see in the chat room a whole bunch of uh, wonderful statements about what you did including caller for president now as an anarchist <laughs> i'm not sure if that's praise or not but i think that uh, <laughs> i think that that's something to be to be uh, to be happy about and uh, i mean totally crap what a terrifying incident uh, and uh I don't know, recommending meds to your kids without doing any research or without doing follow-up. I mean, where were the people in your life when you were going through all of this? Why were they not asking? Why they were they not checking out? Why don't the people do the research? I don't know. It just seems to me, I mean, it just seems to me that this is a very important thing to do. It and is. congratulations on getting back out. And I'm so sorry that you had to rely on the kindness of strangers, as is so often the case. Either the strangers you pay through therapy or the strangers who come into your life who have some glimmer of possibly ancient or future wisdom in their soul. Uh, that's a great thing. And I'm very, very glad that you got snatched back. And I can certainly hear from your passion and coherence that you have not only just kept your mind, but your heart and soul as well. And that is something to be very proud of. I, I really appreciate it. And just keep up the great work now. Keep donating because what we're all doing here is so, so important. I can't help but agree. And you know, again, this is all just amateur hour here, but my understanding is that if you are on these drugs and you want to get off them, you need to get rehabbed. You need to get detoxed. You can't just quit cold turkey. I think that's supposedly quite dangerous. Again, you know, check with a good uh, doctor and uh, and check with better resources than I have, which is just, again, amateur hour. But uh, this is not stuff that this is highly addictive stuff. So Highly addictive and throws many things off. So get help and do it slow. If you're going to do it, yes. do it as slow as possible. As slow as possible. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think we have time for one more caller. And thank you so much for your patience. I am so sorry I that, um, that uh, you've had to wait for so long. But uh, please go ahead. Yes. Hi, Steph. I had two questions for you. One about anarchy and one about God. I'll try to be quick. All right. Let's do, do some easy short topics. Go for it. Okay. Easy one. Uh for anarchy, I'm actually a huge, uh, staunch anarcho-capitalist advocate. However, to be devil's advocate, uh, I was reading your book about practical anarchy, about uh, why we would not get invaded because there's no tax structure, and because another reason is that you don't know what the people in the country have as far as weapons are concerned. But how do you explain that with the with the example of the Native Americans of being uh, invaded that way? Like with the Spanish... Well, uh, first of all, Native Americans were not anarcho-capitalists. I mean, anarcho-capitalism is like is a summit of philosophical understanding, and these people were way, way pre-Socratic. I mean, they were pre-Druidic. They were post-Stone Age. And so they did not have the technology. Technology arises from freedom. 
Uh, now, of course, I'm going to get a million emails of people saying, well, what about all the technology developed by NASA and the internet and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, okay. But that stuff all remained uncommercialized until freedom came along. I mean, that's sort of sure. important. There was no space juice until Tang was commercialized, and there was no internet that meant anything to anyone outside of the Department of Defense until uh, it was commercialized. So technology comes from freedom, and you can measure a culture's freedom level by its level of technological advancement because people love to solve problems and they love to please others and they love to trade that's a natural thing so i think you so, misunderstood me because um i'm not saying they're anarcho-capitalists but they didn't have a tax structure and we didn't know what weapons they had it's kind of what i was getting at no no but what i mean is that an anarcho-capitalist society will be light years ahead of a status society oh, okay i see i see okay that makes light sense. years ahead and okay. so um yeah, look, because I, I get this correction a lot too, or people think it's a correction and say that they won't invade to get a tax structure, uh, invade to get resources and so on, right? Sure. But you can only invade, I mean, you can only invade a country, or it's more much more efficient to invade a country where people have been legally disarmed, right? Yes, absolutely, Obviously. I agree. And there would be no legal disarmament in an anarcho-capitalist society, or if there were, it would be stopped pretty damn quick if there was any remote threat of invasion happening, right? Totally. Yeah, I mean, so why doesn't the U.S. invade North Korea? Because North Korea has about 8 million standard artillery shells pointed at all of the American troops along the border. Uh, and why is it that they don't want these countries to get nukes? In Because you can't do anything about a nuclear power. Uh, so, so they'll be light years ahead. I mean, to give one ridiculous example, right? So, And this is not at all a perfect example. But uh, what do you think the budget is of the insurgents in Iraq compared to the budget of the U.S. military? Oh, it's it's minuscule in comparison. Yeah, it's like a billionth of a billionth of one percent, right? Absolutely. And uh, they 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 kind of won, right? Yes, yeah, they're winning, and they they've won before against the Russians. So yeah, absolutely. And not only have they won in terms of repelling the invaders, but they've actually destroyed the social hierarchies of the systems that they never, whose country they never invaded. Oh, that's very true. I didn't even consider that, but yep. Yeah, communism fell. The existing uh, system is without a doubt is going to fall in Europe and it's going to fall in in uh, North America. Uh, it, it will be a, a very great change, and this is exactly what they planned. And you know, they deserve, and I'm not saying that's a free market, but but that's a lot closer to a free market army than the U.S. military is, right? Right, totally, it is. <clears throat> okay, and one last question on the, on the God issue. I'll make this quick. Um, I'm kind of a I'm a Christian right now. I consider myself to be, but I'm kind of a creeping into that, that realm of agnosticism. And I had just one question. Uh, people will say they don't believe in God like atheists or whatever because there's no evidence or they don't have enough evidence or whatever. However, I've been starting to ask the question of, uh, well, what would you consider a valid example of what evidence would be? Like, what is an example of what you would consider to be a valid evidence? And they're having a hard time answering that. So I would hope that the, uh, you had a better answer than they did on what actual evidence would be considered to be. Well, I mean, it's direct evidence, not hearsay, right? Sure. I mean, there would be direct evidence uh, the, of, of a deity. Uh, and, and what that would be is, uh, uh, you know, a big giant face uh, filling the sky, um, uh, whispering down into everyone's ears in the language that they were familiar with, the ultimate truths of physics and chemistry and biology and so on, right? That, to me, would be a pretty cool... <laughs> I mean, I'd even settle for a website that was, you know, god.com that uh, had posted... Uh, the answers to all of the questions of the universe and and the cure for cancer and AIDS and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that would be pretty impressive. Uh, now, that may be evidence of uh, alien races rather than... But it would be evidence of omniscience, of omnipotence.
omnipotence, uh, uh, you know, direct, measurable, reproducible, interviewable scientific evidence would be uh, the way that I would go. Um, but I would argue that then that would be evidence merely of an alien being yeah, that was that's really what I was thinking powerful, that. right? Yeah, I was thinking that's, too, yeah, that's like a super dude. Alien. That's not what people usually mean by God. Absolutely, absolutely. It could be an alien or if they heard voices in their head, they're schizophrenic or if they predicted certain events from happening. That could... No, no, no. Voices, sorry. Voices in your head means that you're listening to Freedom Main Radio. Oh, yeah. uh, and that <laughs> is uh, hopefully the opposite of schizophrenic. But anyway, go on. No, absolutely. So, yeah, that's what I was wondering, because like you said, it could be an alien, or if you're hearing voices, that's a schizophrenic, or if you predicted events accurately, that's just coincidence. So I was just kind of wondering, okay, what's the, what would a valid example be? So, I don't know, it's just kind of... You know, or it could be, you know, if time travel is invented and they go back to, um, you know, the, uh, the Middle East uh, about 2,000 odd years ago, and they can, you know, film uh, and uh, bring back evidence, empirical evidence of, you know, that the sequence of the stories told in the Bible is true, or they go back even further... And they see, uh, you know, a, a man being put together by a big old dude uh, out of uh, out of clay, and oh, then yeah. his rib being peeled <laughs> out and being turned into a woman, and that woman wandering around naked, and then a talking snake convincing her to eat an apple and feed it to the man. At which point they put on fig leaves and are driven out with a flaming sword uh, to be cursed with um, with work and childbirth. Uh, that would be something that would give a huge amount of credibility to the biblical story uh and uh, uh that would be something that would be pretty cool as well absolutely well, well thank you so much steph i want to take you more of your time uh those are great answers and uh, i'm still a huge fan and thank you for doing what you do thank you so much great questions and uh i would also recommend i did a three-part debate on agnosticism on free talk live you can find that on youtube and in the channel and i would also recommend highly recommend if i may dare so dare do so my own book called uh, against the gods which is an examination of agnosticism wherein i make i think a pretty compelling case that god is the unconscious and that's why it's so compelling and um so i hope that uh, i hope that you'll check those out and uh, i really welcome questions on religion i think it is a very very important topic to discuss and i appreciate your frankness and curiosity about those matters oh absolutely i'll check those out thank you so much all right well thank you everybody and i you know i really do appreciate as always these great great calls i i think that i am incredibly lucky uh, and uh, blessed if i may use the phrase to have what i consider the smartest listeners in the known universe uh, and i would imagine the unknown universe as well. But uh, thank you so much, and please stay late in the uh, in the month. And um, uh, I would certainly appreciate it if you could see your way clear. If you haven't donated yet, <gasps> naughtiness ensues. Uh, if you have not uh, donated yet, you can go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate and give me the awesome sauce with whipping on top uh, of um, a, a donation, a subscription, anything that you can uh, would be hugely helpful. I think that we could be very pleased. With the success of the show, uh, I think that uh, we can really be proud, uh, and this is everyone who's involved in the conversation at whatever level you are, we can be enormously proud of a kind of renaissance in philosophy, I think, that is going along, which is really a community-based involvement and uh, can't work without you. So whatever you can do to support the spread of philosophy, I would be hugely appreciative of. I think the future will be appreciative of. And I guarantee you 12 dreams with L. McPherson, uh, if that is your bag, uh, if, if you donate. And uh, just in order to make sure that they do, in fact, arrive, I will be there wearing a bearskin rug. So whether you want that or not, it's up to you. But thank you so much uh, for all of your time and attention. And I will talk to you soon.